You're listening to TIP. Hey, everyone. Welcome to this Wednesday's release of the Bitcoin Fundamentals podcast. On today's show, I have back legal expert Joe Carlosari and good friend and Bitcoin OG American HODL. And we're talking about all things Bitcoin. This show encompasses a wide-ranging, candid conversation about all the events happening in the Bitcoin ecosystem. We cover the Binance CEO's potential jail sentence. We talk about the massive FinCEN proposal and what people need to do to take action here in the United States. We talk a little bit about the incoming bull cycle and much, much more. This was a really fun and thought-provoking conversation, and I can't wait for you guys to give it a listen. So with that, here's my chat with Joe and Hoddle. You're listening to Bitcoin Fundamentals by The Investor's Podcast Network. Now for your host, Preston Pish. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the show. I'm here with Hoddle and Joe, and we did this in the depths of the bear market. Probably what a year, year and a half ago. What was it? Something like that. A year. I that was already that long ago. Yeah, yeah. man, that, that sucked. <laughs> I was I'm, secretly. I might have been crying in my Cheerios. I'm not going to admit that publicly on this forum, but it was tough. That was a tough time. <laughs> it was a difficult road, but uh, I think we all agree that it, things are looking pretty spicy right now and pretty exciting. And I'm sure we'll get into all of that before we go in that direction which will turn into a very bullish conversation. I want to cover some of the shadier stuff that's, that's been happening. Anytime I have a chance to kind of ask Joe some of these questions, it's just, uh, I enjoy hearing your responses to these things, Joe. So I have quite a few, and I'm sure Hoddle has many follow-ons, and he has a lot of questions here as well. So where I want to start is the CZ Binance takedown. I didn't see this happening. I mean, I knew the SEC was going after them hard. I suspect you can call it a tinfoil hat. I think everybody in the community was posting, like, you know, basically Larry Fink and all these others are, are, don't even want an ETF approved until Binance is taken out. I just didn't know how it was going to go down. And, and when we, we all saw this Twitter post with, oh, CZ is admitting to conducting fraud and is, and, and make sure my terminology here is correct in your response, Joe. And he's now going to pay a $4 billion penalty. He has till, what is it, May of 2025 to pay this, almost as if they're like, hey, we know bull runs coming and we know you can't pay it right now, but maybe by 25... <laughs> You will have the money to pay it. I don't know. What is your take on this? Because it's so much more educated than the debauchery I just did leading up to this question. So let's start um, back, I think, really 2022. There was a Bloomberg report that came out that said Justice Department was split over charging Binance, which to me, the very easy interpretation of that is they still need to complete some additional investigation that they definitely think there's enough to bring charges, right? But they kind of want to sort of dot all the I's and cross all the mm. T's. And then the confusing thing came is then in the spring, right? We got those back-to-back lawsuits. And I remember being on a podcast with you where boom, we get the Binance suit and then boom, we get the Coinbase suit back-to-back within a couple of days. Mm-hmm. And that's really confusing, right? Because usually what happens in these types of investigations, Preston, is that criminal moves first and civil always takes a backseat. The traffic ticket sort of civil penalties that the SEC brings 
those are never going to be as impactful as criminal charges where they're hauling you uh, away in handcuffs and you know you're facing uh, uh, some time behind bars. So, you know, me and some other lawyers in the space were chatting about this. And we're like, this doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I mean, in the CFTC suit against finance, there was actually an allegation that they knowingly aided and abetted funds being transferred to Hamas and to terrorists. And uh, so if you're doing that, if you're knowingly engaging in money laundering, particularly for hostile actors, for nation states like Iran, who have negative uh, uh, views of the United States, that violates numerous international and federal laws. And obviously, you're doing that knowingly catering to U.S. customers, which gives the DOJ its hook. What was happening? Why did why was the SEC and why was the CFTC given the green light to go file these charges? Well, we know the answer now. The answer was because even at that point in the spring, they had been in active investigations, active uh, negotiations, rather, with Binance and staff to mm. say, you're going to pay something. Okay, you can come kicking and screaming and we're going to find you wherever you are and extradite you back to the United States, even though you claim you're not subject to U.S. jurisdiction. Or you can come with us and come along and let's negotiate some agreement you may not like, you may not be comfortable with, but at least you can live with and you might you know, not have the same fate as someone like SBF. So that's an easy calculus, right? That's an easy thing if you're facing certain prosecution from the U.S. government to continue negotiations. And that's why DOJ probably said we're close enough on a deal that we're going to green light this and say, you guys go ahead, SEC, uh, CFTC, you do your thing because we're going to probably get this guy to plea. So that's what happened. Good Lord. So then the amount, the $4 billion, like, so how is something yeah. like that even determined? So there's a whole memorandum that's put in place by the government, why they're recommending it. And it's basically a percentage of the laundered money. They, I don't have all the numbers, some of which are still protected by SEAL, but I think the idea is that you're taking a certain upper threshold of what is in fact, and it's negotiated, right? It's not necessarily the whole full amount, but they're going to say, we can, we can agree to this and we will support this if the government backs the plea. So I think there was some calculation where they said, it, based on some conservative estimates, it was like 25 to 30% of the laundered money. That's how they came up with that calculation. Now, keep in mind, that's the government's recommendation. Usually the court will defer to the government on sentencing recommendations, but not always. And we do know that there is some dispute still that remains between the government and between CZ's lawyers, right? And most notably, there was a request from CZ's lawyers where he said, let him leave the country, let him go back when he's pending sentencing that doesn't come until February. And guess what? The judge said, no, I'm going to look at this issue. And for now, you're about to stay in the United States. I think a, a big question I have and a lot of people have is, uh, is CZ actually going to see time inside of an yes. American prison for this? Uh, okay. Yeah, so what kind yes. of, what kind of time will he be looking at at sentencing? Well, the government, uh, in some file documents said that they're going to, they're going to go for, uh, closer to the maximum statutory amount. So, you know, it might be, uh, again, if I ask me what's the judge is going to do, I think it's a couple of years at most probably less. You know, I think 18 months makes a lot of sense given his cooperative nature. Keep in mind, he did the exact opposite of what SBF did. And if you recall at the time, there's no way SBF doesn't plead. They've, they've got him dead to rights on the facts. Well, CZ's taking the opposite approach. He, he voluntarily came to the United States. They didn't have to extradite him. He showed, in a federal court, uh, showed his face in a federal courtroom, said, I plead guilty. I'm not disputing any of these. He's going out of his way to try and be uh, cooperative with the government. That's a huge factor for the judge. The judge is mm-hmm. definitely going to take that into consideration. That being said, you know, he knowingly helped get money in the hands of terrorists. He also knowingly helped Iran evade, you know, uh, international uh, rule of law to prevent, you know, money laundering. So 
he does face serious, serious charges. And the government's probably going to, you know, try to stretch it out a little bit more than he would like. The government, like I said, they're, they're going to go for years of time. I think uh, most likely, though, the judge is going to be very lenient on him. But he didn't donate a billion dollars to all the politicians on both sides. Right. But so maybe, you know, that, it, maybe that was the, why the approach was different. Well, remember that text message also, or it was a signal message, I think, that said, LOL, bro, we are literally financing terrorists. I mean, when you have an admission that's that glaring, uh, yeah, you, you just have to play. There's nothing else you can do. Right. I, I wasn't even aware was of that. Defense. This is this is CZ that had that. I'm, I'm not aware. It was, of this it was uh, Binance employees on an internal uh, signal chat. No way. Seriously. Dead serious. Wow. Yeah. The complaint's stunning. I mean, the, the amount of text messages and, and CZ, CZ's signal that they uh, were able to get is just amazing. It was a done deal. I think when the CFTC's complaint was filed, that there was going to be some charges coming. The only question is, you know, what variety of them, what, you know, plea was going to be negotiated. But yeah, I mean, it was, it wasn't, uh, there's no defense for that, right? When you, we, there's actually a text, another one that says, you know, we see the bad and we look the other way, I'm paraphrasing, but effectively, like they knew that this was money laundering. They knew it was an unregistered exchange and they ignored it entirely. I guess mm-hmm. like a tangential question here is like, if this is happening on Signal, how in the world are they acquiring these texts? Dude, I personally, <laughs> let me go full tinfoil hat. Yeah, let's I hear it. I always thought that Signal is a cutout for an intelligence agency because I don't know if you remember this, but the FBI put out a list some years ago that were like, uh, here are all the encrypted chat apps that we don't have access to. And it's like Signal. Yeah, we can't get that one, bro. Uh, go ahead and use it, criminals. <laughs> like to me. Almost uh, like an advertisement. One, yeah, if you have one side of the Signal, if you have access to somebody's phone on the other side, you can break the encryption that way. It's pretty easy, right? Yeah. So you just nab, nab up a low-level employee and take their phone and go through well, all the On a side note, I see Jack, uh, Dorsey, and others on Noster promoting Simple X. I've played around with it a little bit, and I mean, it, there's no KYC from what I can muster. I, I did download it out of the App Store, so you know, I guess there's some type of connection there that Apple would know that I've downloaded that app. But the setup was definitely different than a lot of these messaging apps. Uh, whenever I did set it up, I don't know if you guys have played around with it. Sorry I, to go. I think anybody. Tangent. I mean, you know, Joe's the attorney. I'm sure he'll echo this thought. But anybody who's out there using Signal because it's you know. It's encrypted and you can just like, oh, yeah, bro, let's talk about financing Hamas over Signal. Probably not wise. I mean, listen, in cases I've been involved with, uh, people think because they're sending it over Signal, there's no way it gets out, which is just nonsense, right? Because there are numerous ways that if you compromise someone who's getting the message, they can preserve it, right? They can they can take a screenshot of it. They can yeah. take a photo of it and they can preserve it. So, so it doesn't really get you off the hook. Once something is right in writing, it, no matter how encrypted or how secure, it can always be compromised. But one more I want to give to you, Preston, for yeah. your audience here. Yeah. This, this, this is from the CFTC complaint. It was actually referenced in the government sentencing man- memorandum. In February of 2019, going back to 2019, the chief compliance officer, uh, Samuel Lim, uh, L-I-M, of Binance says, regarding Hamas transactions, Lim explained that terrorists usually send small sums as large sums constitute money laundering. And then his colleague replied, who they don't name the colleague, which is interesting, but it says, can barely buy an AK-47 with 600 bucks. Like, come on, they are here for crime. We see the bad, but we close two eyes. That's a quote from some messages that they're getting from the chief compliance officer at Binance. Wow. I, I like how even the terrorists are aware of uh, structuring. They're structuring it under the limit. Uh, yeah. Hilarious. 
I want to uh, go a little bit outside of this particular topic, but it's tied to the Senator Warren uh, letter that she wrote to the president, which was mm-hmm. immediately followed by this FinCEN proposal that like the next day. And in her letter to the president, she was wielding around this Wall Street Journal article that, you know, was claiming that $120 million was being siphoned through crypto to Hamas. And then chain analysis came out, I want to say like four or five days later, and the number was more like, I think it was 450,000, which is like a third of a percent of what she was claiming. When you look at this FinCEN proposal, I don't know how much you've gone through it, Joe, but it is really substantial, like the, the ambiguity in this thing. And I guess it's nested under the, the Patriot Act. Is that, is that correct? The update to it? Well, or the proposal it's, it's, to it? Yeah, I mean it's it's FinCEN regulations in itself, but the Patriot Act has some internal U.S. rule ba- making, but FinCEN at large has also has its own regulatory authority. I'm looking at this, and my concern is they've made it so broad and so overarching that you could pretty much lump anything into it. So if you're a full node operator and they don't like the fact that you have five channels open to other nodes, like all of a sudden you're now a money transmitter. But like these definitions that they put into this thing and the sheer amount of legal horsepower that it's going to take to fight anything that they want to kind of throw at whoever they want, I think becomes a major issue if it does go through the way that it's currently proposed. And I I know the comment period is going out to uh, the 22nd of January for people to respond to this. I'm trying to type up something that kind of addresses they had like 30 or 40 questions that they proposed to the public to respond to in their public record uh, for this proposal. I'm trying to address all of these questions and and put it out there on Twitter for people to kind of look at template. If they like it, they can post it right into the register to to respond to some of these questions and some of the points that are being proposed in this FinCEN proposal. I want to hear your point of view on this because that's my point of view. I think that it's just they've taken a million pounds of crap threw it against the wall and like it's just going to stick like there's no way you can clean it all off like it's just there it's there's so much to try to respond to and the burden of proof is now on on anybody in this space to try to defend themselves i work both in bitcoin and represent some crypto clients as well uh, and we've had talks about this at length and i think what everybody who's listening to this, if they're involved in the bitcoin space should have in their mental model is that there will be laws that are passed internationally, nationally, state level, local level that are overbroad, that are vague, that are confusing, that will not withstand scrutiny when challenged from a judicial perspective. What I mean by that is that a government regulator has in their vested interest to craft the broadest possible legislation, the broadest possible rulemaking, because they don't want to have to be in a situation where they don't have the teeth to do what they need to do. Now, The problem with that, and we see this in many industries, they see this in the insurance contacts with some of my clients. When you have a very broad law that is confusing, that is vague, it is welcoming challenges. Okay. Mm -hmm. And the way to fight back against this, I I truly believe, and to my disagree with this, is the the court system. The court Mm -hmm. system is very willing to strike down laws that are void, that are void for vagueness, that are overbroad, that basically capture innocent activity. And the court system has sort of a hacksaw where they can cut away at some of these provisions to clean them up. And I think from the regulator's perspective, they'll say, that's fine. 
Yeah. We'll take the legitimate challenges. And if the courts want to pare back our authority, so be it. But that's the way I think this goes. I think it goes with overbroad, vague statutes that are passed. So there's no doubt they have something to use to go after these folks. And then at the end, they say, yeah, all the legitimate folks, they're going to have to bring legal challenges to cut this thing up and uh, make exceptions from a judicial perspective, have a, have a judge basically make the, the exceptions to protect the innocent activity. I totally agree with Joe's perspective. And I do think that like this is a serious era of Bitcoin where we're going to have to fight for Bitcoin's existence, not in the shadow realm, not not in the gray market, but, you know, in the white market, in the light, like Bitcoin has to basically nobody gets a free pass in America. You have to fight for every right all the time. Like the price of freedom is constant vigilance. Nowhere is that more true than in Bitcoin. So like everybody who thinks they're going to cypherpunk their way out of it, I think uh, if you look at the Canadian situation, which we all had some friends get caught up in, yes, your Bitcoin is permissionless and it can cross borders and it can do amazing things. But you are a meat puppet who lives on government land. And if the government wants to suddenly, you know, retroactively call you a terrorist for sending some money to some, you know, nice Canadians, unfortunately, that's a reality that you have to deal with. And that's a reality that's coming for all of us, I think, with these FinCEN regulations and other overarching regulations that I expect in the future, because the the one thing the government is not going to stop doing is it's not going to stop trying to da- dox Bitcoiners, and it's not going to stop trying to tax Bitcoiners. It wants to get those two things done, and you know it's going to be successful to some degree. And just, just to think about this, okay, and I don't mean to get all political on this, but people should be aware of it in their mental models when it comes to Bitcoin. There was numerous mask mandates that were put in place, okay, by local authorities, by the CDC. Those things were put in place by lawmakers and regulators who thought that this is essential for health and human safety. This is essential for the country to operate. And the judiciary eventually looked at these things, just case law in in Florida and many other uh, states where they basically struck them down. They said, these things violate and exceed your authority. So the reason I bring that up, not to go down a dangerous path that's controversial, is because if they're going to do that with health and human safety, with a, with a national epidemic or a pandemic, if they're going to do that with that, what do you expect for Bitcoin, right? You're, you should expect in your mental model, draconian, overbroad legislation, regulation that you need to challenge through the legal process. And thank God we live in the United States where there's an active judiciary that will hold the feet to the fire. And this Supreme Court, okay, has displayed consistently a tendency to err on the side of liberty and freedom. That's one thing that the United States has going for it is the the United States Supreme Court is currently constituted is very much focused on individual rights and liberties. So that's one thing from your perspective you might want to consider. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, redefining sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offering next-level comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit light driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can enjoy a dynamic drive and total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. 
Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Today, I want to share such a tool with you called Meka. Meka is the AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Meka does a lot of the heavy lifting of sifting through financial statements and company data and delivers it to you nearly instantaneously, and the best part is that it's 100% free. Try it out today and ask Meka questions like, what is the financial health of Microsoft? How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? Check it out today for free at Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. The Holy Grail of Investing, the new book by Tony Robbins and co-written by investing legend Christopher Zook, reveals the secrets of alternative investments like private equity, venture capital, energy, real estate, sports franchises, and more. It features exclusive insights from investing titans who collectively manage more than $500 billion, including Robert F. Smith, Vinod Khosla, Michael B. Kim, and many others. In the holy grail of investing, you'll discover how to take advantage of the trillions flowing into private equity by becoming an owner of firms that actually manage the assets and share in the revenue they generate, how to take advantage of the two to three times higher returns of private credit as an alternative or complement to bonds, how to invest in the energy evolution and ride the wave of trillions in global investments, how investments in private real estate can work as an inflationary hedge and source of tax-efficient income, and how many of the world's greatest investors thrive in both good times and bad. The Holy Grail of Investing by Tony Robbins is available now wherever books are sold. All right, back to the show. The way I've been trying to approach this, and this is where I guess I need your help or just kind of your your opinion or point of view, everything you said is, is exactly how I I'm seeing it play out. So I'm thinking, all right, so if we can put as many comments into the into the register when they have the public comment and we're commenting, hey, this is violating, you know, this particular piece because of this all these case law that have you know, have this precedence, you're breaching my rights as a citizen because of X Y and Z. And you're listing it out as as, you know, let's say we have a thousand I think there's already a, over a thousand comments on this proposal. But like, let's say there's high quality comments that are pulling case law. Does that provide ammunition to these businesses that are going to be battling this on the other side after it's approved because they can point back to the register and say, look, we told FinCEN, this person here, Joe Schmo, on the back in 2023 was pointing out that this case law was violating this right. Like they knew it, they passed it. Does that help their case or? Yes. It does. Yeah. It helps everyone's case because here's what, here's what happens. When you make a regulation and there's numerous different regulatory bodies that have a tremendous amount of power, you know, the sort of shadow government, as people say, like the regulatory state, when they're doing a rule change, and this goes for all levels of government, and you have public comment and you're soliciting public comment, that becomes part of the official record. Mm-hmm. And what ideally occurs, and this is not always the case, but what ideally occurs if there are legitimate high quality comments, like you're saying, the regulator should respond to those concerns. Mm-hmm. They should say, well, this isn't a concern. You know, These types of legitimate activities shouldn't be affected because of X, Y, Z. So then what happens is when you're actually as a legal challenge and you have a plaintiff who has standing and can say, 
no, no, you were wrong. Your response to the comments was wrong. It was misguided. You didn't understand the technology. You didn't understand the, the second and third order effects. Then you have something to literally point to when you're in a legal challenge saying, not only were they warned of this by numerous people through the comment period, but their response to the comments was insufficient. They could basically glossed over it and ignored it, which to me, if I'm looking at something, depending on the type of challenge that's being brought, if you're a judge and you see that, that they not only, it's not a, just like an unintentional consequence, this is something you overlooked as a regulator, I would hold their feet to the fire. It'd be a little bit, I would apply more scrutiny to them and their process if they purposely ignored legitimate comments made by good actors trying to be comprehensive. Now, they're going to do it anyway, though. I mean, like, yeah, they're yeah, yeah. Henry, Henry Kissinger just died today. And uh, there's a quote from him, I think of often, which is the illegal we do right away. The unconstitutional takes a little longer. That's Kissinger. Right. So like they're going to do it. Right. And yeah. we're going to have to continue to fight it in the court. And Joe's going to make a lot of money because, you know, we'll fund. It. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, listen, this is this is the biggest, you know, I'll just go on one one digression. OK, the idea that we're going to be able to become the backbone of the global financial system and you won't have Bitcoiners stand up and won't have them fight for it, I think is just naive. Right. Yeah. You're, yeah. If you're, you're, you're going to have. And by the way, by the way, the ETFs are a big part of that process. Right. As you have a, an ETF come to market. You now have more firepower from a legal and regulatory standpoint. Those mm. folks that are going to go in there and advocate, because guess what? We have clients now that have this money and it's part of our assets under management. Mm. We have to go fight for it. That this is all part of the big process. So aside from, you know, the guys saying, oh, we, everybody should just self custody Bitcoin. I get it. I understand that. I'm sympathetic to that. But having big entities being willing to put legal firepower and spokesman firepower behind these talking points, that's going to be huge. I'm going to prove my psychopathic tendencies here. I've been working on a response to this FinCEN thing for probably two weeks. Just I think I'm at like page 35 on this thing and still not done. And I'm just trying to, I guess what I'm trying to do is just create a turnkey template for people that they can kind of mm. pour through this thing. And they're just like, I'm really passionate about this particular right that's being violated. Here's the case law that that backs up why it's being violated. And it just gives them something that they can copy and paste like straight into the register on the proposal. So I'm not a lawyer, but I, I'm leveraging AI as, as best as I can. And I mean, it's kind of insane to be able to kind of interact with almost like a lawyer in your pocket. Now, obviously, it's, it's not up to Joe's caliber or anything, but it's definitely good at being able to help me digest all the legal jargon in the proposal itself. And to kind of be able to go back and forth to like try to find nuggets in all of this. So, any advice, well, one, Joe? Or like, yes. So, I think the biggest advice when you're dealing not, with regulators, not legal advice. Don't give me legal. No, no, advice. no, no, not not legal. Thank you. I appreciate that. No, but but the 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 best recommendation I can give you, just from a policy standpoint, and this goes at every level. Okay, and this will be yeah. a continual battle we have over the years, both with state and local and, and federal lawmakers. Is that when when you start from the position of what the government is trying to do, right? You have to sort of confront that head on. And I think right here, what, what is the primary goal? I, I don't think you should ascribe to them that they're really just, even if they are, right? From a persuasion standpoint, that they're trying to crush the technology, they're trying to inhibit Bitcoin uh, adoption. I think you should approach it. Listen, you want to make sure bad actors aren't uh, avoiding. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, money laundering requirements aren't avoiding KYC, aren't, aren't committing horrible bad acts. Well, here's how you do it, right? Here's how I would propose a framework that would prevent that from happening. 
and you try to have a softer touch. Okay. So the advice or recommendation I would give to folks from a policy standpoint of doing this and trying to engage with regulators is say, here's the alternative precedent that you would recommend. Because the idea that they're just going to stay hands off when at least, you know, if there's $40 million that's going to terrorists, I think they still propose a rule. It can be, you know, your argument's spot on about how it's such a tiny amount in reality that Elizabeth Warren and others are focused on, but that's, it could be a dollar. It doesn't matter. They're going to yeah. go after it because it's a very easy target and it doesn't have the, the support of other uh, industries. This was my frustration. So a month, uh, I think it was in October, the US had sent $6 billion to Iran. Then you look at the news that, that followed this, and it was like, no, actually, we were holding it back. And then you read, it, it, depending on what political bias you had, you could find an article that suggested whether it was sent or that it wasn't sent. And like the irony to me is you had this chain analysis that took place, and they're like, no, it was actually $450,000 that was sent. And like, here's the proof because this is a public ledger and everybody can look at it. Meanwhile, you have. $6 billion, which is 60 times larger than the lie that was three-tenths of the amount, which was 400000 right? That we have no idea whether Iran got it or not. Like The irony of that and that we're dealing with these ledgers, these money ledgers that are behind barriers that you have no idea what the heck's happening is like the ultimate irony of the entire letter to the president. Right. Like it's just like there's there's moments like that where I'm just like, am I living in crazy town? Like this whole system is so corrupted. It's it's nuts. Like we can't usher this stuff in fast enough. I think we as Bitcoiners have gotten so used to transparency that when we go back and reflect on the current system, which is largely narrative driven, we we look at it and just go, this is bizarre. It doesn't make any sense. I can't. But, you know, we all used to live in that. And that was like the dogma that pervaded our life. And it was just every day. You read the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and basically whatever they said was gospel. And you just said, OK, yeah, I guess that's what's happening. But we now have the ability to check on chain exactly how much money went to Hamas. Now, again, to Joe's point, you know, the old world uh, elites, they still live in a narrative driven economy. And Elizabeth Warren is like, you shouldn't even exist. We should be able to crush yeah. you, destroy your industry. It's just like the Bitcoin mining debate. You can make all these analogies about how little as a percentage of the global energy consumption Bitcoin uses and how it's positive for the grid and all these things. But you're talking to someone who thinks this activity shouldn't exist, period. That yeah. is a wasted activity. And so it's not going to be, in my view, it's not going to be effective when you make the argument, well, Christmas lights use up more, more energy electricity than Bitcoin. Because they would say, well, we like Christmas lights. They have, they have a purpose, right? Like we, we like to dress up our houses. Bitcoin mining is just wasteful. Nobody needs an open distributed ledger that can't be corrupted and has no single point of failure. That argument doesn't hold water with Because that. most people not- don't have any savings, right? Like, so right. If, if you're not yeah. able to retain any savings because you're in debt up to your eyeballs and you're playing the debt game, you're, of course, you're not going to understand Bitcoin. You have nothing to save, right? <laughs> like... And I guess we shouldn't be surprised that that's the majority of the populace around the world, because most people around the world are debt slaves at this point. They can't save any money. They have no disposable income. Bitcoin is that technology for people that have disposable income that are producing more than they consume. So, yeah. Which is why UBI is the most bullish thing for Bitcoin ever. I mean, right. That's why I talk about this. UBI, once we get there. 
which I think we will, at least many countries will, that's incredibly bullish for Bitcoin, right? Because you're putting money right into people's hands directly, and they can then transfer it into Bitcoin, which is harder than the asset they're being given. Well, and again, UBI is the Trojan horse for the CBDC because people go, why should I accept this controlled? Other way around. The CBDC is the Trojan horse horse that comes with UBI. Yeah. I mean, people will basically say, why should I accept this controlled state money that has time decays on it? And the answer is going to be because, yo, you're getting a thousand bucks. That's pretty Mm -hmm. sweet, man. Go buy a kayak or whatever, you know, right? So like most people are just going to opt for the short term incentive there. And they're not going to think about the long-term uh, ramifications. And that's what's going to drive the divide between the producers and the consumers in society. is Because the consumers yeah, are going to be getting all the coupons. And the, the net producers are going to be holding the Bitcoin. And they're like, yeah, I don't, I don't accept that. I don't want that. <laughs> yeah. So let's talk about, there was this post uh, recently by Andrew Abacus. And he, every time he posts, he's, he's posting about Barry Silbert and DCG and Genesis and GBTC. And uh, recently his, his post that he just came out with is, I mean, he's, he's not mincing any words here. He's basically saying DCG continues to run a PR games and a fraud via subsidiaries like Genesis. I've heard people say that there's a bunch of marketing that they're seeing on GBTC again. They continue to suck all these fees out of the GBTC product, which is this trust, the Bitcoin trust. And, but the rest of the entire architecture of, of Barry's business is bankrupt, and they have huge amounts of liabilities that far exceed their assets. Either one of you guys, like, do you have a take on this? Is my real question on this is if you're Larry Fink or BlackRock or any of these big Wall Street major players on Wall Street, are you trying to convince, and I know Joe's point of view on this is he doesn't think that there's any type of coordination between the SEC and, and big Wall Street banks, but I know, Hoddle, you, you have a much uh, more tinfoil hat opinion like I do. If I'm those guys, I'm trying to get them to fumble this 620,000 Bitcoin out of that trust so that I can, mm. I can buy it at existing spot prices. Joe's already rolling his, his head. I love let's, let's, his I'm eyes. Gonna, I'm going I'm to add some more tinfoil here, and then we'll let yeah. Joe tell us yes. how, how stupid we are. But you know, I, <laughs> I do think that BlackRock has a big problem here, which is GBTC is obviously the market leader. They have like some ungodly amount of Bitcoin, six hundred thousand Bitcoin or whatever, right? Yeah. You know, it is the golden goose of Barry's empire. If you remember a year ago, the big fud item of the bear market was, bro what if all the GBTC is fake Bitcoin, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> what if they don't have it? What if they lent it all out? That was the big FUD item, right? And uh, I actually went through some diligence on that with a friend, and then we both decided, nah, they have it. And then we we made buys at the bottom, which turned out to be really good buys. But you know, if you're BlackRock, if you're Larry Fink, you got to get your hand on some significant amount of Bitcoin to be the market leader here. And there's really no way you can do that without running the price. So listen, I'm not alleging that there is some sort of a conspiracy here, but it's a big club. And I don't think Barry Silbert is in it. You Mm -hmm. know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. and I don't think they want to let Barry Silbert in it. I agree. I don't know. I don't know the kind of massaging and, you know, unspoken agreements that go on, you know, where in the smoky room. And okay, now Joe can tell us how, uh, you know, the logistics actually. (laughs) I agree with you, Hoddle. I'm with you. Let's hear Joe's (laughs) point of view. Okay. Grayscale is probably most responsible for the ETF that's going to come in January. 
And you have to start with that position because Grayscale defeated the SEC under a very high standard that was difficult to meet, proving that their treatment of the spot product was arbitrary and capricious. Grayscale met just a few weeks ago, actually, just at the, I think it was the uh, later part of October and uh, into November, maybe. They actually met with the SEC and they pointed out to the SEC that they had something called the, uh, the transfer agent agreement with BY, BNY Mellon, which will allow them to convert to the spot ETF. And there have been other, well, I gotta be careful with what I'm saying, but there are other indications that Grayscale will be launching its conversion at or near or potentially even before some of the other players in the market. What? So the notion, yeah, yeah. So the notion that they're going to be somehow sidelined from this process when they're meeting with the SEC, where they have uh, effectively, and this is a public document that's become available where they've effectively talked about an uplisting, that's the term they're using, an uplisting date for the exchange traded product. That is massive, right? That that just shows you from my perspective that this is going to get green light with all the others. And okay, so if you're going to give them the same treatment as everyone else, plus they've got a massive multi-billion dollar advantage structurally because they have all these customers and they have this huge pot of money and they're going to be lowering their fees. Why would anybody move and incur a taxable event potentially when you've already mm-hmm. closed the discount? What advantage does BlackRock have? I mean, BlackRock has the name, right? But if assuming this is correct, right? Obviously, we're just making predictions here and that's always dangerous. But assuming they all launch at the same time, I hope you guys will admit then that there was no secret sauce or you know preferred entry for BlackRock because what entry do they get? What, what advantage will they have structurally if it all comes together at the same point? I think what me and Preston are wondering together out loud is, is there a way they can turn the screws on Barry so that he no longer has ownership of GBTC. That's like, well, I think that's, well, that's exactly what we're, what we're saying. Well, you guys know that the New York AG is suing him, right? Right. The New York AG is, uh, and there's a lot of rumors about criminal activity. I don't know what he did or didn't do, but there's a lot of rumors. So I'm going in, the ongoing interviews with the Southern District or Eastern District of New York, potential prosecutors looking at this as well. The New York AG is suing him for making false statements. He's, they're also suing Gemini, for that matter. And they're suing Gemini, they're suing Genesis, and they're suing Grayscale for them knowingly making false statements about the EARN program and the other lending activities. And uh, so, so you've got a whole host of allegations. And with all of that, the SEC is still meeting with them to talk about potential conversions to the ETF. So Joe, help me with this. What type of timeline do you think they could charge Barry with all of these entities by. Could it happen prior to this ETF date that, that I know you've posted about being early January? Could something right. happen between now and then where it's like, oh, hey, Barry, it's going to be $2 billion and then you're off the hook, right? And then he's forced to sell the GBTC product into the straight into the hands of, call it BlackRock. And then he has just enough to to pay the bill because of the premium that he would get for his 620,000 Bitcoin. When you say charge, there's an active suit right now yeah. by Letitia James of New York, right? She's suing that $1.1 billion in losses related to fraud committed by Gemini, Genesis, and, uh, uh, and DCG. And the product, if he was going to sell the GBTC product, is worth a billion? A little bit more, a billion and a half, somewhere in that ballpark. 
you're talking about the actual the trust yeah the, the, the trust brand. he can't the brand. the brand yeah 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 okay because he can't he can't sell the trust i just don't want anybody yeah. who's holding dc uh, gbdc to right, think right, that right. he can correct he can reach into the trust and get the but if he's going to sell it if he's going to if he's going to sell it those were, uh, these were the numbers that i had heard it was, it was around a billion to maybe a billion and a half that he could sell it for but why would he well, if, why, if well, he needs why, to get, why, why wouldn't he? If 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 okay, let's let's put on uh, our thinking caps here for what we would do if we were yeah. him. If we were him, okay, the most important thing he can do right now, free advice, right? Not giving advice, <laughs> but free. You know what I mean. Uh, the most important thing he can do is do whatever is necessary to ensure when the ETFs launch in January that he is right there, right in the mix of things, that he gets his conversion done done day one. If he does that. You number one get a bunch of new inflow, which means your fees are going to be coming through. You can string the litigation along for as long as possible. And 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 again, this New York AG suit was filed just in October, and you guys know how slow litigation moves. It can take years potentially. There haven't even been charges brought from the feds, right? So, so that answers my from the yeah, that answers my question. That that yeah. I see. I don't know. I don't understand that timeline of like how long that would take to shake out. You're it suggesting could, it, it could take, could take a years. Long time. Oh, okay. Yeah. It could take yeah. years. I mean, you know, the, that's why you want people. That's why the feds always go for, we want you to plea. We want mm-hmm. you to plea. Mm-hmm. We, we bring the hammer because we can get justice and we can make headlines and we can get money and we can do it instead of years. We can do it really quickly. I mean, look, they ran this SPF case. Uh, that was like rocket docket, right? That was filed last year. And they just got a conviction. Uh, when did the conviction come? Last month, he was convicted, mm-hmm. like in two hours or something. His sentencing will not be until March. Ironically, CZ will be sentenced in February before SBF. I also How is that possible? A- How is that possible? Because oh, he pled. Oh, That's it. yeah, yeah. No. Okay. No trial. I, I have a friend who was given a private audience with Barry a few months back. And basically the view from the inside there is that Barry is in fight like hell mode, defend the empire. Like he's not, he's not giving it up easy. He's not going to roll over. So they're going to have to come with everything they got. If they, you know, if that is the outcome, like tinfoil hat. And then, you know, I also think Barry's a pretty smart guy. And if he did things that were unscrupulous, I would imagine they were papered in a way that was legal. That's just my personal feeling about it. He's also got a we'll suit against them by the Winklevi, right? The Winklevi are yeah. suing him directly, saying he personally misled them about the Genesis and DCG and committed fraud on them. He's a big blocker. Like, how, how smart could he be, Hoddle? Oh, geez. So good. That clip. Will by the way, out. I am a GBTC shareholder <laughs> from way back. Uh, yeah. I've been holding GBTC in my retirement account since 2015. And my God, that's it's been uh, way more of a, a roller coaster of emotions than I ever thought it would be or should be. You know? Yeah. <laughs> by, by the way, one little nugget from the AG suit. She alleges in New York um, that Barry and Gemini, both of them, both of them knew that Genesis's loans were unsecured and at one point concentrated as much as 90% with Alameda, obviously SBF's operation, 90%. So those folks, you know, if you're blaming Sam and everything, uh, rightfully so, blame him, right? But there were many actors that knew of the extreme concentration at Alameda and they looked the other way. You know, who got caught without a chair? Doquan, Mashinsky, SBF, CZ, right? But there were other players who found chairs and are going to make it through relatively unscathed, you know? Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. 
Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com WSB. That's fundrise.com WSB. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Today's show is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Ally, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA slash SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, the more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify even helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. What I personally love about Shopify is that it's the turnkey solution to kickstart and grow your business, and they are totally committed to giving you the necessary tools to succeed as a business owner. Plus, they have an award-winning customer support team there to help you every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash WSB. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash WSB. All right, back to the show. Honestly, you have to look at the Binance deal. Look at CZ and what will eventually, I think, will come down on this is that he's getting away with controlling his ownership in Binance, number one. He's getting away with something uh, where he'll be a free man at, at some point, you know, not too long from now. And he's getting away with what, what, how much, he, what is he worth bottled? Billion? 
couple billion. Yeah, he'll, it'll it'll diminish him quite a bit, but he'll be a he'll be a multi billionaire still. You know, right? I mean, how many people would take that trade? You know, yeah, and and, yeah. and and by the way, by the way, in making that plea, right, he's basically gotten uh, protected against future criminal future. prosecutions, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so like if the, if the monitor gets in there, which we haven't talked about, but you guys, that's the biggest thing about the Binance plea, right? There will be a government independent monitor in there that will have access to all the books and records for a period of three years following February. Which there's yeah. been a lot of talk online about that particular point and them having yeah. access to all the KYC and just being able to see everything that's happened on that platform. Right. So if they go in there and find the bodies that are buried, effectively, they're, they're not going to be able to do much. Right. They've yeah. kind of already right. done the plea. I got a question here for Hot, if I can go. Ooh, yeah. Um, yes. Or actually, both of you. I really want to know. So I think this is coming. I think it's a done deal with respect to the, yes, the, uh, the ETF. I think it comes early part of January. If not January, then at the latest, you're getting it by March. I think you're going to get a host of them. I think this is going to come in and it's going to, you know, I read something today that close to 60, 70% of FAs said it would be, they would be more likely to put some money into Bitcoin, some allocation mm-hmm. with an ETF product that they can offer to customers as opposed to the products that currently exist. So let's assume this is all happening and let's assume we're talking next year before Christmas. And I always like to think like, okay, we've got that there. We've got the ETF taken care of. That was a huge thing for years, you know, five, six year battle what's next? Like, what's the next big, you know, mountain that Bitcoin has to conquer? Because there always is one, right? Like on this progression, we're going to, what comes next in terms of a big thing we need for the industry looking forward after the approval of an ETF? Something we need for the industry, or are we talking about price appreciation? Both. Let's go. Both. Okay. Yeah, I think the ETF is really interesting. I've thought quite a bit about it for a long time. It's been, you know, me and Preston are like same class of Bitcoin have been in almost 10 years. And the ETF has been talked about the entire time. So the fact that it's finally going to happen is, is pretty wild and it's the end of a pretty long road, right? But I think it signifies Bitcoin going through a maturation phase, but also the potential for sort of a shadow prohibition era of Bitcoin. Because if you end up getting quite a bit of Bitcoin in the public markets that's all under custodial control... You, you end up with weird incentives and, you know, things can get perverse from there. And really like the revolution here or, you know, the, the evolution, whatever you want to call it is, is self-custody. It's, it's being able to keep control of your own wealth. And so if we end up in a world with, you know, middlemen and custodians who are controlling our wealth with permissioned access, right? Request granted, you know, like, no, I don't ask anybody's permission. Free men don't ask. I don't ask anybody's permission to send Bitcoin. I just send it, right? So if we're in a world uh, of custodians, we, we end up having like something like, I don't know, 5 million Bitcoin in the public markets or something like that. And then there's some sort of coordinated campaign, uh, some sort of a you know contentious fork. Like, I don't know. I think all the options are on the table. And then at the same time, you got you know nation states coming in. I just heard somebody the other day, I don't know if this is true or unsubstantiated or whatever. They told me the nation of Bhutan has as many Bitcoin as Michael Saylor. Right. Hmm. I, I don't, I've never heard that before. I just heard this for the first time yesterday. Maybe that's true. Maybe it's not. Who knows? And then after after nation states, you got central banks. Right. So like the ETF will unlock pensions and, you know, it'll take place of, of gold and investors portfolios. If you look at fidelity and the sharp ratio and all this stuff, like it makes a lot of sense. Gold is not performing well. 
you know, digital gold is what you're going to want to have in a digital era, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But then, yeah, you got it. You got the dominoes of like nation states and central banks are like the, the next big ones after this. And the game is changing and it's getting much more serious and there's much more big money here. And so I don't know, man, it's TBD on the outcome, whether Bitcoin is capturable or not. We know for a fact that gold is capturable. We have a good feeling that Bitcoin can resist capture, state capture. But we don't know that for certain. And so we're going to have to see the game play out. And I'm, I'm excited for the next 10 years, you know, because that's what I think is unfolding. I agree with Hoddle. And I, I actually really like that he's not just kind of waving his hand and saying that it's ordained, that it's not going to be capturable, right? I think that it's important for the community and for the builders in the space and everybody just to, to continue to refine this thing to try to make it as foolproof as possible. Now, obviously, you know, if you ask my opinion as to do I think it's capsule, I don't think that it is. And I've obviously given many reasons through all the shows and time as to why I think that it's not. One of the things that I think is, is also going to be important is when you look at who's going to have the incentive to kind of move to this first from like a payment standpoint, it's going to be all the countries where they've just been decimated by dollar dominance. I think you're already starting to see some of that play out where they're moving towards this. And I think that on this next bull run, once we make a new all-time high, it's going to be, hey, how, how can I get... It's going to transition from, hey, how can I get my hand on some tether dollars, exposure to dollars? And I think it's going to... More and more people around the world are going to be like, hey, how can I get my hand on some sats? And then people are going to be willing to accept that as payment because it's running. And I think, I think this next bull market is going to run really hard just because of how much compression we had on this last cycle because of bad actors. By the way, I think uh, in terms of price appreciation, those scenarios is, in my opinion, if Bitcoin is capturable, you have kind of a, a cap on it at one to two million dollars. If Bitcoin is not capturable, then sky is the limit. It's infinity. Yeah, in fiat terms, yeah. Uh, this is one I wanted to bring up here. Joe, you had a post recently. Uh, you said the plaintiff's bar is thirsty for blood. If you're an influencer with a decent amount of followers and promoted altcoins, I'd be preparing for litigation. So you say this, and there's this really strange video of Charles Hoskins. Uh, is that how you say his last name? Floating around where he's like Hoskinson, going I think. something yeah. like that. Well, Scam. you heard about Charles uh, Scampling. You heard about Ronaldo, right? Today, you heard about that class action that got filed, right? No, oh, I know it's coming for Ronaldo. No. Really? <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I, I'm breaking news here. It's not breaking news, but uh, <laughs> no, there, uh, there's a class action lawsuit over his promotion of Binance. One billion dollars is what's being sought. Okay, and uh, you know he was on. I think he was on social media ads talking about a partnership and how they're going to change the the NFT game and. You know, there, there are, there's other suits that have been filed recently about, I think one's against the MLB for their role with FTX and, you know, they're folks that associate, this is what finally, finally you're getting what I think is far more equipped to deal with the altcoin market, the private litigants, the private plaintiff's bar, which has a lot of resources. Think of how many lawyers are in the private sector versus the SEC's, you know, few hundred that can take care of this industry. And by the way, they also have to police TradFi. The plaintiff's bar finally is realizing you can file class action lawsuits against these entities. You can group a ton of people who have lost 
huge pots of money betting on all these different assets that you know aren't Bitcoin. And you can haul them into court and make them answer for why they did what they did and why they made representations about things. And even if the cases don't all stick, enough of them settle because of the extreme defense costs that are involved mm-hmm. in some of these things, mm-hmm. that that is in some ways uh, difficult for folks. So it's not the, the DOJ, it's not criminal, right? But in many ways, it is on par with what the SEC can do. Because this is a big thing. I think Hoddle and I have had a lot of discussions with on Clubhouse and elsewhere about this. Like At the end of the day, what the SEC can do is they can go in there and do really two things. They can get an injunction, which is a court order that says you cannot do this in the future, or they can effectively issue a speeding ticket that you have to pay X amount of fines. You have to pay such a disgorgement that you, of your profits that you made money on. But that's it, right? That's the end of, I think people were under the misapprehension that Ripple executives were going to end up behind bars or something. That's not what the SEC does. The suit is a civil enforcement agency trying to recover sums of money. So to me, if you equip the plaintiff's bar with thousands and tens of thousands of potential litigants and they file class actions over anyone who's issuing these types of things, in many ways, that's going to be uh, you know transformative. Because you're really going to have to be on guard for the variety of different suits that are going to come. I mean, the SEC's got to find you first, though, Joe. And uh, they can't find Richard Hart. Nobody, if anybody's seen him, let the SEC know. Because they can't find this guy. On that guy, I just don't know how anybody could watch this guy like decked out in like the Louis Vuitton gear. And it's like, it is the most vibrant, like weird stuff like how could anybody look at that I, guy and Russ, i figured this out take I him out. seriously like so i i can't okay. you know how the nigerian you know how the nigerian email scammers will misspell words as a filtering mechanism the full gucci tracksuit is a filtering mechanism for anybody with an iq above 100 so if you're taking financial advice from a man in a full gucci tracksuit with a male <laughs> purse you know that's a filtering mechanism Oh my lord. People like that, like I just can't block them in my Twitter feed fast enough because it's just yeah. like it's like toxic chemical that you pour into your brain. Like I can't even look at that kind of stuff. It's just it's so it, it's amazing to me that people still buy the thing and still think it has some value. That's the it's even just, crazier part. Well, here's here's like a question. Here's a big question. <laughs> Is there going to be, I mean, there's a lot of actions, you know, enforcement actions, like Joe said, like the private sector is getting wise to what's going on here. Are we going to see another, you know, celebrity endorsed and, uh, you know, fueled shitcoin bubble? Are we going to see another one? Is there, gonna, yes. is there yeah. another alt season? Yeah. Yes. Which, sure. What are they selling this time? I mean, I, last time it was monkey pictures. Is it dog pictures? Like, like what, what do you pivot to? When you had that sheer amount of insanity on the last cycle of like, and it wasn't even like they were different monkey pictures. It was the same monkey with like different teeth or different sunglasses or like somebody just went into like an AI bot and was like, here, just bang out like 10,000 pictures of this same monkey with like different hair and different whatever. And we're going to sell these, each one of these things for like a, they were doing it with rocks. There was JPEGs of just a rock and they were selling I mean, it's all money laundering. It has to be money laundering, right? There's no other rational thing that would say that a JPEG of a rock could be $100,000 or whatever the crazy amounts were. It's, it's money yeah. laundering, right? Yeah, well, I mean, some of it's coming to Bitcoin, right? With this ordinals and inscriptions thing like that, that. I keep seeing people on Twitter all the time talking about 
how they're purposely going to try and drive up the cost of transactions with uh, you know these things put on chain, and that that's where the money's going to be, and that they can give use cases for Bitcoin beyond uh, you know just a, a store of value. What do you guys think about that? That's going to be a weird cycle, right? If you've got a lot of this stuff on Bitcoin. You know, here's where I'm at on that is uh, I came up with the analogy that um, putting an or like, you know, sending a super high transaction fee to put an ordinal on the blockchain is kind of like paying for a first class Emirates ticket for your to fly your Beanie Baby collection across the Atlantic, you know, and it's like. I'm a capitalist. If you want to do that, that's your prerogative. Like, I'm happy to sit in first class with your next to your beanie baby. It's ultimately more, you know, it's more space for me anyway. You couldn't describe it any better than that. Oh, my God. Yeah, I guess uh, my point of view on it, Joe, is is very similar to, to HODLs. Like, the real innovation with Bitcoin is it's actually a, a true free and open market. Whether you like inscriptions or not, like you can do it. You know, if these people want to pay really high fees because they want to have this raw data in, like inscribed into the blockchain and they want to pay thousands of dollars to, to get it there so that everybody running a node basically has a copy of it, I guess I'm okay with it. And I think the higher fees are maybe forcing us to really kind of think hard about how layer two functions and like how mm -hmm. to keep fees intact and immediate settlement and that type of stuff. So I, I don't necessarily see that as a bad thing right now. I think that it's actually uh, forcing the engineers and the innovators in the space to really kind of think hard about like what layer two looks like because of it. This is not my view, but I, I want to yeah. bring this out. Because I, I had a tweet about this and I was kind of surprised because one of the folks on there that uh, I had a similar view, right? You want to pay the money, you want to use up the block space, that's your right, you're burning cash, you know, go to it, you know, you did, <laughs> by all means. Luke Dash Jr. commented and he wrote, and I'm just going to quote him verbatim, he wrote, forcing every Bitcoin user to do something without their consent isn't okay. Bitcoin doesn't support JPEGs. Then Ari Paul responded, clearly it does. I think you mean you want to censor them because literally we can all see it does. So you must be talking about social consensus. And then he wrote, no, it doesn't. You're just lying to people. We need to fix a policy bug. There's no software needed. And he actually tweets out a GitHub basically saying we can fix this. And this is this was never intended. It was never part of Taproot. It's a glitch. Right. And, and just like when there was uh, issues with the supply glitch that was out there, the, um, you know, the inflation bug that was fixed. We can fix glitches. This is not the purpose of Taproot, and it's being abused and manipulated. So what say yeah. you, Hoddle and Preston? Yeah, I mean, listen, Luke is, uh, Luke is always, <laughs> Luke always has very extreme opinions, and he's, he's a guardian of Bitcoin, you know, and I respect all of his work. But I still am more of the opinion of, you know, I've always been um, sympathetic to platform maximalism, which is just you can do a lot of different shit on Bitcoin if you want to. But I'm, I'm also very sympathetic to monetary maximalism. So, yeah, I just I can't find myself taking an extreme hardcore stance here. The ordinal thing, just it's not something that bothers me. I think yeah. it's I think it's a function of fiat itself is is a huge part of this because you have so much just nonsense just sloshing around and they just add more monetary units into this thing. And there's all these money launderers out there. I think that it's it's a function that you see it's so dang prevalent. When money fails, everybody becomes a speculator. So like all of these all these activities are non-value accretive type activities. And yeah. so like when we look at where we're at in this moment of time which is like 
we're approaching peak clown world and it seems to only get more clown like by the day like i think we should expect these really strange like if we were 40 years into the future and looking back at this moment in time we'd be like how in the world was anybody doing that and not trying to create value for each other and exchange like these these monetary units by exchanging performing value accretive things for each other and so like i guess when i look at them just like hey like let's let the free and open market sort this out if you if you want to fly next to the beanie babies fly next to the beanie babies and i think time is just going to naturally solve it where nobody's going to actually have an incentive to do this because everybody's going to be then pretty focused on creating value for each other as opposed to scamming one another in some type of speculative play by selling something that has no value to somebody else by conning them or making them think that it will have value because they sprinkled some social BS on top of it. But so let's play it out. Let's say we're 10 years down the road or 15 years down the road and like this is still and I don't even know that it would take that long, but like it's it's still like dominating and it seems to like maybe be causing other issues that we haven't really kind of figured out with the patterns that are kind of playing out in society. Well, then maybe I might be more on board with with where Luke's at right now. I got another one for you both real quick because uh, I've been dying to hear this. So you're going to have multiple ETFs launch right in January. Just going back to that for a second. As Bitcoiners, right? We love to sort of uh, say this is the Bitcoiners hardware wallet. This is the Bitcoiners exchange, right? I want to know what you both think coming here, assuming all the ones that have applied, the you know eight or ten of them that are that are in market um, had come to market uh, similarly at the same time. What becomes the Bitcoiners ETF? And I'll just say full disclosure: I have said publicly that to me, if you're going to try and cater to Bitcoiners. Uh, that really are passionate about transparency, openness, that sort of thing. Free advice, again, uh, not, not advice to any of the ETF issuers. If they want to cater to the Bitcoin community, they should absolutely be transparent about the Bitcoin they hold, give on-chain addresses, be as open and honest about that, and not do the whole, uh, we're going to keep the on-chain Bitcoin hidden and secreted. Um, that's my view. Yep. I think that's what they should do. I think that should be the, the strategy because you're going to be buying for market share but what do you guys think? What, what will be, in your, your view, the, the Bitcoiners ETF? Is it really going to be BlackRock? Yeah. Is that going <laughs> to... So, so the, the obvious answer here is that there is no Bitcoiners ETF, right? And yeah. a Bitcoiner worth, yeah. worth his salt would never buy an ETF. But I will honor the spirit of the hypothetical yes. and, say, yeah, and say that I've always had a lot of respect for Fidelity. And I think Fidelity has been mm. an early pioneer in this space. They have a great custodial program. They seem to be really... You know, they really get digital assets and a lot of people, uh, you know, who we all know have come out of there. And also they had like a report that said Bitcoin was going to like a billion dollars by 2038 or something. So it's like, those are my, those are my kind of people, you know. Weren't they just citing stock to flow for that? I mean, wasn't that the basis? Listen, for hey, whatever, however <laughs> they got to that number, that's a great number. You know what I mean? I like to hear it. Yeah, I, I like that answer. I, I think that Fidelity has kind of had their head around the actual value prop from the very beginning. Uh, and it, it obviously comes from a very high leadership level within the, within the organization from the very top that has allowed them to kind of approach it from day one very differently than everybody else on Wall Street. So I will give them props to that. I would like to see them because I don't think you can do withdrawals through Fidelity right now to self-custody if you want to. So I think they need to get beyond that. And as far as like the ETF goes, 
this is not something people should be buying but i understand why they probably will be buying is it's just easier and they don't care about the like for the three of us and i might be speaking you know out of turn by saying this but we're here for the freedom tech like we're here because we deeply believe that this is going to usher in a much fairer wor uh, world for for all the participants and that the existing system is extremely corrupted I just don't think a lot of people, like if you lined up a hundred people off the street, that they are going to empathize with that really deep, the hardcore opinion of like, that's what Bitcoin means to them. And so like, they're just going to be looking at it as like, oh yeah, I want some, I want some price action to that thing over there. Now maybe they'll get there five or 10 years later or whatever. And so like maybe where the ETF is a good thing is like using a, a drug example would be like a gateway drug for people to maybe come to a much more deeper and profound understanding as to like what this is ushering in for society and for humanity by at least having some type of exposure. And then maybe they get on the rabbit hole and get a lot smarter on, on like what it actually is. One thing I often think about is I think about Satoshi's genius with the supply issuance curve of Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. The fact that so much of the supply came online so early and changed hands so many times. And the Bitcoin that mass amounts of Bitcoin did end up with very ideological Bitcoiners who are really, you know, here for the cause, same way you outlined. One thing I'm, I worry about though is back to the legal challenges and the regulatory challenges that Bitcoiners are going to face over the next 10 years. It seems clear that uh, people like Elizabeth Warren hate self-custody. They despise it because they realize it's powerful and they don't want you to have personal power or sovereignty or be able to transact in a peer-to-peer -peer fashion. And I worry about them creating such onerous requirements on self-custody, like reporting requirements, et cetera, that it would cause most people to say, I'm just not even going to bother and I'll, I'll just buy the ETF because the brokerage will do all the reporting requirements for me. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, I worry about stuff like that. And I think that's a, that's a likely attack vector. It's much more likely than them banning self-custody because they're not going to be able to ban it from a constitutional standpoint. And we'll be able to send guys like Joe to court uh, and argue on our behalf and we'll win. But are we going to be able to get out from under onerous reporting requirements that I don't know. And if there's enough friction there, it'll cause quite a large number of people to just default to say, I'll, I'll take the path of least resistance here. Well, you guys have, have you followed the, the, the debate or sort of the, the, the push and pull uh, between BlackRock and some of the others in the SNC about the use of in-kind creation for shares? You guys know oh, about this? No. A little bit, a no. little bit. Okay. Uh, so you, you clarify if any of this is, is uh, not clear. Okay. Hoddle. So, so basically the debate is this, when you're going to create shares, okay, can you create the shares by using in-kind, right? In other words, I have Bitcoin. I give my Bitcoin to BlackRock. BlackRock issues me shares. And BlackRock has reportedly pushed for the in-kind creation as opposed to cash creation, which is different, right? Where cash creation is, I have a million bucks. I want a million bucks worth of shares. I give you my million bucks. You go out and you source the Bitcoin from the private market. That is a huge issue in my view, not because I, I think the price is going to be manipulated or anything like that, but it's really important to create as much flexibility from the standpoint of being able to move Bitcoin into the shares and move the shares back into Bitcoin. 
And that could be a huge thing. If you, I mean, unlike things like the GLD, right, in terms of the ETF, where you can't really redeem the gold very easily, Bitcoin could prevent, present a novel product that could potentially be very interesting for us where we're, okay, you want to get a margin loan? Okay, you can do that through your Fidelity account. You can put a small portion of your stake of Bitcoin in exchange for shares, potentially not even incurring a taxable event, and then get access to margin and liquidity through the traditional financial system because that's marginable. That's huge, right? That is a massive windfall. And you don't have to sell your Bitcoin, right? Because there's a way structurally to do it without actually having a taxable event. It's difficult. You're going to have to get the SEC to go along with it. But that would be a game changer in my view. That's interesting too, because you would think that if it was cash settled, that it would have more of an effect on the price. But if it's in-kind settlement, then there are other positive externalities and it allows you to hold BlackRock accountable should they be a bad actor because you can more easily redeem the Bitcoin, right? Well, you're just, you're just talking about how, how are the shares created, right? How are the right. shares created? So can they create shares through just someone turning over the Bitcoin? And by the way, this is what GBDC does, right? This is how they were extracting the premium. People were tending over their, tendering uh, over Bitcoin, right? They're, uh, sending over their Bitcoin. They would get shares that would go to subject to a lockout period, thereby extracting the premium, then selling those shares. So you imagine an open door sort of where you could get Bitcoin in, shares, use your shares if you want liquidity or margin. And then if you want your Bitcoin out, theoretically, you should be able to withdraw the Bitcoin it's from the exchange. So how is this not an attack vector that they could rehypothecate between audits and basically do exactly what happened on this last cycle? The way you would prevent them from doing that rehypothecation is open transparency about what Bitcoin they hold and when they hold it and have that number published every day. That's how you do it. If not, your point is, is a valid one, right? Uh, you definitely have windows there where there's less transparency and between audits where you could kind of slip through and not have all the Bitcoin you purport to have. Um, but you know, this is this should be something if you recognize that an ETF on balance is a positive thing, even if it's not the preferred way of holding Bitcoin, uh, you should push for transparency and you should say, okay, fine. We want the, if the ETF is going to come and we can't get around it, have it come, but also have there be very clear accounting and, and use the latest technology. The whole point of Bitcoin is that you can see in real time who holds what. Identify your addresses, make it clear what you hold. Hopefully, because yeah. there's so many that there are going to be entities that choose to treat it that way. That's my point. Like, right? Like, when I asked the question about what's the Bitcoiners ETF, the entity that does that will have me publicly say, don't buy from an ETF, hold Bitcoin yeah. natively. But, but if you're going to buy Bitcoin on an ETF, go with the, the Franklin Templeton transparency ETF, you know, that, that sort of, I don't know. I'm just, you know, go. No, with no, that. I think, I think that's a good point because, you know, culturally a lot of people like to say, Oh, Bitcoin maxis, bro. They're boomers, bro. They don't, they don't understand, man, whatever. And uh, culturally Bitcoin maxis do have a lot of power. And if everybody is marching in the same direction and saying like, that's a shit product, don't use that. It holds some sway. Right. So um, like, I like that as a market force to keep the ETFs a bit honest or a bit more honest anyway. I'm gonna, and you know, with, when one of them does it, they're all going to do it, right? If you get one of the ETFs to be transparent about what they're holding, I think it would be a, it's like fees, right? It's like anything else. Yeah. Once one of them does it, they kind of all have to follow suit to not give a competitive advantage. I'm just going to cut this clip and uh, send it to Stephen McClurg and just tell him, hey, Joe uh, has some advice for you, Stephen. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, you, you guys, uh, he, he's going to be upset that you didn't promote the Valkyrie ETF as, and you went with Fidelity. Burr, man. Oh, yeah, you're he, right. He's you're not right. going to he's not going to he come is. back on the show anymore. He's going to be him. very mad at me. You're right. I didn't even think about that. Yes. Even though he has like the funniest ticker ever. <laughs> OK, so let me ask the big question. The big question is all of the ETFs are going to hit in January. That's that Joe seems pretty confident. Approved, approved. They, they might not. He's not just saying January. He's saying the fifth of January. The fifth of January. <laughs> the fifth of the eighth. That's right. And there's going to be a lag time. Yeah, there's going to be a lag time before implementation, right? But like you know, GBTC it will probably be first in line, etc. And then all of a sudden, BlackRock has to buy up a bunch of Bitcoin, and the price starts to run a bit. And you know, where do we think we're heading over the next oh. like eighteen months, twenty four months? You know where. What does this look like? Last, let's be honest here. Last cycle was a bit disappointing. You know what I mean? I was, and, yeah. I was talking to my uh, uncle. I think it was today. And we were talking about like, okay, so like where are we at in a year, Preston? And, and like his response back to me, I'm not going to tell you the numbers that I was saying to him. He's like, oh my God, man, you need to put the crack pipe down. <laughs> So I'm very, I, dude, I think the coming year, I think the coming two years is going to just melt people's brains. And so much of it just has to do with how much compression we've had on this past site. And you can see it, the, you know, there's, there's a little bit of a meme going around online right now. It's like, oh yeah, it's 70% of the coins haven't moved in a year. But I think that that is extremely profound. And I think it's really important and I think that the speculators that come in at the end that bid the price to the moon in that last like kind of six month period, at least historically, it's truly because there's no coins left, right? And the, and the psychopaths that have been stacking it through the 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 eighty percent drawdowns, their basis is from a cycle or two even before that, and the fact that it would bid to like mid six figures or whatever the the number is like still doesn't entice them to sell any meaningful amount of their base position. And like, I think it is just so lost on people, like how and how and like important this idea is of like these hodlers of last resort, which is a trace mayor term, right? But he's right. And it's just, it's vital as to what causes these price pumps because you have, you're dealing with a fixed supply, terminal supply thing that's, like nothing else on on this planet. Joe, what do you think? I think that the possibility for Bitcoin going exponentially higher this cycle than the prior one is very high. And I'll tell you why. And, and let's just step into it. Just a little bit of a macro conversation here. The Fed has been explicitly targeting a recession. They've almost said that explicitly. They When they want labor the labor market to become more into balance. They want it to rise. Their targets all show unemployment going up. They've talked about specifically how there's going to be softening in the uh, in the real estate market. And much to their dismay, I think, we've not gotten one. And I think that when you have government spending running currently at about 7% of GDP, providing a ton of cash, basically running wartime deficits into the economy right now, and you cannot trigger recession despite very high rates, you have two potentials that could come from that. Number one, the Fed is forced to just throw up its hands and say, we tried to, we try to slow this down. We can't, we can't, we can't, uh, we don't have a, the option. We did everything within our power, including QT and, and rate, high, fastest rate hiking cycle in, you know, 30 years. And we still couldn't slow the darn thing down. But for a variety of reasons, structurally, we can't have the government run these high deficits. So we have to cut 
in the face of very hot inflation, right? Still far above trend inflation. That is going to be massive for Bitcoin, right? I don't think it was a coincidence that we had this uh, aggressive sell-off when the Fed began its rate hiking campaign really in the early part of 2022. Right, that was in Bitcoin took a hit. I mean, and it, and it affected some of the weaker players in the industry, so that cascaded out. Well, if you have the opposite happening right now, if you have we avoid a recession and we have the Fed is easing proactively because they just throw up their hands and say we can't do it, and the, and the government tax burden is just too much with these high rates, that's going to be massive. The other possibility, okay, that I think is very bullish, is that if you have these structurally higher rates moving forward. Combined with the government spending, and Lynn Allen talks about this with fiscal dominance, right? That is effectively liquidity built in to push to the backs of push Bitcoin forward, right? You've got a constant flow of cash from the government's continuing to borrow more and more money and pumping that through for the entitlement program. So all of those things show you're in a very different environment than I think pre COVID. And, you know, you've got a potential new administration coming in. And if you remember, HODL, we talk about this all the time. What did the last administration do? I, I have these tweets. I, I think they're funny. Sometimes I, I go back and, and review them. And you had the former president who looks to be the front runner this time saying, we need negative rates. We need rates yep. incredibly low. The Fed should be doing more QE. You've got sort of the political appetite out there to just to the moon, right? Whether that's a good thing, bad thing, depends on where you sit. But to me, like that's huge. I mean, and you really want to try to time that and like try to figure out, you know, what Who's going to win the White House? Like, and decide whether you're going to buy Bitcoin. To me, like, I think all roads are going to lead to Bitcoin. Like they say, because at the end of the day, okay, we know that debt can only be solved with more debt. That's their only solution to everything. Yep. And as the system is constructed now, you can bank on there being more and more debt, which eventually finds its way. That liquidity finds its way into Bitcoin. So are yeah, you, I'm pretty bullish. You pumping this hopium into your veins, there, Hoddle. <laughs> I'll give you I'll give you my perspective is, uh, you know, I track I track the investor psychology around the Bitcoin markets pretty closely because I'm here all the time, 24, 7, 365. And I pay pay attention to what people say and what the chatter is. And I think there are a lot of people who believe that uh, diminished returns are the rule of the land. And the one thing I know about being around Bitcoin for 10 years is that whatever everybody believes is, is absolutely going to happen is categorically not going to happen. Right. Mm -hmm. So like, I think it's likely that we see some sort of a sell-off right after we break a hundred K like around like 120, 130, people start to sell, take profits. People go, God, I'm not sitting through another cycle again. It was terrible. You know, I'm finally going to buy that house, you know, that I wanted yada, yada, yada. And then the price, you know, it sort of evens out for a bit. Maybe it goes down a little, then it starts to run again, hard. Right. I mean, I, you can definitely see this scenario playing out. And all of those people who sold are suddenly, you know, these are most of these people will be long term hodlers mm -hmm. who are looking at themselves going, holy, this thing is it's happening. I'm getting back in. I'm fully invested. Then, you know, the marginal buyer who is bipolar, by the way, goes, wait, these guys are all in. I'm, I'm in even more. And then you get the euphoria stage. And like everybody thinks when they go through the bear market, they go that you tell yourself a lie in the mirror every morning where you go, I'll never get that greedy again. Nope, not me. No, sir. And then price rises and the greed hits you like a ton of bricks and there's nothing you can do about it. You're strapped into the roller coaster again. So to me, I think we're going to see the diminished return uh, narrative, get its legs chopped out from under it. Mm -hmm. And then we're going to see a real run at Valhalla. You know, we're just going all the way to the moon. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's what I'm predicting. I think that is I think you are all over it. I think you are going to have a lot of people from the 2020 cycle that 
Because that that cycle was pathetic compared to the 2017 yeah. run. I mean, it really was. You're going to have a bias there with a lot of people that kind of entered that market that I think get shaken out very early on and what they think is a big move. And it's just just another little blip on the on the radar of where this thing's getting ready to go. So I'm with you. I mean, great time to be a Bitcoiner. <laughs> it's going to be exciting. It's going to be exciting no matter what happens. All right. One final thing to talk about. So let's say that so a lot of people are expecting a recession to kind of really we're getting these deflationary winds potentially that are that are brewing i'm hearing that we're going to have our first cut in the first quarter let's say that we do manifest this and i know joe you just kind of gave all the reasons why you didn't think that was going to happen but let's just say that that it does and maybe we see a liquidity event similar to like march 2020 where bitcoin was i want to say it was up 10, 13,000 and got punished the whole way down the 4,000 in short order because of this impairment and liquidity, cascading liquidity event that happened through COVID. Who knows whether we could see some type of contagion like that. If that would play out, I'm of the opinion that you would see Bitcoin probably react very similarly to what you saw during that uh, March 2020 event where it sold off really hard, but the bounce was near immediate. I mean, you were within 30 days, you were back up to a price point that you were at. I think the market is primed for a very similar response if we would see some type of contagion in the traditional markets. I'm curious if you guys would agree with that. Well, I'll just say that it depends on what the contagion is, right? I mean, in the COVID circumstance, which I think is a unique set of factors where you had a very uncertain situation where there was a mad dash to get cash and you had disorder in the treasury market, which primarily cascaded through every other asset class. Yes, I would agree with you. I think Bitcoin takes a hit. I don't think that's really likely given some of the the measures that have been put in place both before and after COVID uh, to absorb those types of shocks. Things, for example, like the BTFP. Those measures that have been put in place, they, they keep trying to perfect and come up with new tools to prevent these sudden quick shocks. I think the far more likely scenario is this slow grind for a lot of traditional assets, kind of like what you've seen with the bond market. You could have a sell-off in equities. It doesn't have to be a sharp, you know, vicious decline. It can be one of those slow grinding bear markets where things go down further. And in that environment, I'm not as convinced as perhaps some others that Bitcoin is going to really struggle. What Bitcoin tends to very much freak out about in my research is volatility. Like when volatility goes off the cliff uh, and basically explodes higher, you know, you got a VIX uh, bearing down on, you know, 60s, 50s, that range. Bitcoin really takes it and it gets hit. But you can have plenty of sell offs and plenty of bear markets and equities and bonds where mm-hmm. you don't have some explosive thing. And I think that's what everybody keeps expecting, which tells me that I don't think it's coming, where you basically just get this real hard down. And to your point, like, you know, you could have a recession, you could have unemployment rise, you could have equity sell off 10, 15, 20% or more. And it, depending on the rate of the decline, it doesn't necessarily mean there needs to be this huge shock to Bitcoin. We have had just this year, right? Periods where you had equities were sold, they sold off 10% uh, into the end of October. Bitcoin didn't budge, right? It actually just kept on its train going because of all things you're talking about, all the coins locked up by the diehards. Unless you get some systemic risk, I don't expect a hard down on Bitcoin. It's an election year. Hoddle, any comments on the 
Yeah, the election is God. Uh, can we <laughs> skip over these things, man? Like, honestly, I, it's it's going to get so brutal. It's just so crazy to me how detached as a society we have become to this idea of free and open markets, right? Yeah. Like, like people say it and they, and if you tell people they're not free and open, they're like, yeah, I know they haven't been free and open for years, but then it's just like, and I don't care. And that's just right. how things are. And I'm perfectly okay with that. And I don't know. I'm just, maybe it's the military background in me. Like, I guess maybe I, I thought that, that what I was doing it and like defending was this free and open market society that like, and I guess that's why I'm such a hardcore Bitcoiner is because like, it's the only thing I can see that it doesn't matter who the president is. Like this thing is a force to be reckoned with, with respect to actually introducing free and open markets back to society. And well, humanity, free and open right? markets require transparency. They require transparency for one, but they also require personal responsibility. And the problem we have is that people don't want to have personal responsibility. They may yeah. say it until their stock portfolio falls fifty percent. And you're and right. Come on, <laughs> well, help me out a, here. We live in a nerfed world, and you know, I mean, if. How many people that are, you know, investing in their 401ks and just, you know, some passive flow of, you know, index funds know what is in those index funds? Nobody has any idea, right? Yeah. And all they know is you throw money at the stock market and it spits back more money. That's that's all anybody knows, right? There is no capital allocation going on, you know. Charlie Munger just died yesterday, right? So like, you know, I mean, Charlie Munger was one of the great value investors. You know, I learned a lot about from Charlie about how markets should actually work. And when I came to Bitcoin originally, I came from a value perspective lens, which I know Preston did as well and, and Joe too. And Bitcoin was one of the only places in the world that I actually saw value. When I first bought Bitcoin, it was $200. And I was like, well, if this thing does what I think it can do, the sky is the limit, million dollars plus, right? And that was a crazy thing to think back then. But being able to buy something for 200 that you thought was worth a million is you know, crazy value for money. And uh, yeah, that was the lens by which I first approached Bitcoin. And it feels good to actually be doing capital allocation because if I was wrong, I would have lost all my money as it should be. Mm-hmm. That's the way things should be. That's how if it you're should wrong be. in an investment, you should lose. You should, you should go to zero. That's right. That's right. You know, 10,000 was an insane number back then, by the way. Yeah, yeah. it was. It was like, could you imagine if this thing like went to 10,000? <laughs> All right, guys, let's wrap right there. This was a blast. I love just having these candid chats with you guys and uh, really appreciate your time and just your thoughtful comments. It's it's really appreciated. Do you guys have anything that you want to uh, highlight? Let, we'll start with Hoddle. Nothing to highlight. I, I think stay humble and stack sats. That's the best thing anybody could ever tell you. The best advice. That's it. That's and, all you need. You're active on Noster. Is that correct? I'm still on Noster, still on Twitter. Uh, just, you know, shit posting. It's, there's not tons of value there, you know, <laughs> Joe, I always have to plug here. If you, you want to, my help in, in any litigated dispute, I'm always happy to have a conversation with you, talk about anything I can. Obviously, if you've been around in Bitcoin or the larger crypto space, uh, you're aware that, uh, as we talked about tonight, the space is rife with fraud and there are plenty of good people that have been taken advantage of and also people that are facing very onerous suits at this point uh, unfairly because of uh, you know the the idea that whenever there's a bear market whenever assets decline people bring out the litigation and uh, I'm very busy but I'm always willing to talk to new clients so uh, you can google my name and you'll find my law firm I'm happy to talk uh, Joe Carlosari at Amundsen Davis and I'll just say 
I think next year is going to be absolutely crazy. I mean, I can't, I can't, I honestly get excited just thinking about all that's coming down the pipe. I mean, where you've got markets at, where you've got uh, litigation, keep in mind, like you've got these major pieces of litigation, Coinbase and, and Binance that are still pending with the SEC. The SEC came out and said that FTX style fraud was committed at Binance. And that's to be determined once you get that monitor in there is going to be providing government documents out to the public. So Stay tuned. Uh, and also, like Cottle said, that you have to survive until 2025. That should be your slogan, right? Like, because we're, we're in for some craziness next year. Love yeah. it. Absolutely. All right, gents. Thanks for your time. If you guys enjoyed this conversation, be sure to follow the show on whatever podcast application you use. Just search for We Study Billionaires. The Bitcoin specific shows come out every Wednesday, and I'd love to have you as a regular listener. If you enjoyed the show or you learned something new or you found it valuable, if you can leave a review, we would really appreciate that. And it's something that helps others find the interview in the search algorithm. So anything you can do to help out with a review, we would just greatly appreciate. And with that, thanks for listening and I'll catch you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.